I'm Lana Ulrich, in-house counsel at the National Constitution Center, and welcome to Live at America's Town Hall, the podcast featuring live constitutional conversations held here at the NCC in Philadelphia and across America. Today's episode features Ken Starr, the former independent counsel who headed the investigation that led to President Clinton's impeachment. Starr sat down with NCC President and CEO Jeffrey Rosen here at the NCC to discuss his new book, Contempt, a memoir of the Clinton investigation. During their conversation, Starr offered his unique perspective on the investigation and explained why he thinks of the Clinton presidency as an American tragedy. They also discuss the historical legacy of the investigation in light of the Me Too movement and the Trump presidency. Here's Jeffrey Rosen, live from the NCC. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Constitution Center. <laughs> I am Jeffrey Rosen, the president of this wonderful institution. We have uh, a friend here who's been here before, but he may not have heard all of you recite our inspiring <laughs> mission from Congress. So let us do it for our guest. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the US Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. So help me God. <laughs> I don't know if you're allowed to add that part or not. That's but we can a, have a debate I, oh yeah, that's about right. that aspect. I pledge allegiance. This so is that's great. That's fine. You can absolutely <laughs> pledge allegiance to our mission. Friends, uh, Ken Starr is a friend of the National Constitution Center. One of my very first experiences here was as a journalist in the early 2000s. And I came here and uh, a Professor Starr, as I think he was then, Dean Starr, led a seminar on the Constitution for journalists. and inspired uh, all of us. He has a distinguished career, which you know well, former US Solicitor General, former judge on the US Court of Appeals for the DC Circuit, uh, Independent Counsel uh, uh, for President uh, Clinton, and then President of Baylor University. And he's here to discuss his new book, Contempt, a Memoir of the Clinton Investigation. Please join me in welcoming Kenneth Starr. Thank you. It's good to be here. We're so glad to have you back. Uh, I'm going to uh, uh, presume, if I, can, if I can call you Ken, and say Please. that when you were last here at the center on this stage in May 2016 on a panel on the presidency and the Constitution, you had some too many surprisingly nice things to say about President Clinton. You said that his capacity for empathy for human beings is absolutely clear. You called him one of the most gifted politicians of the baby boom generation, and you talked about a redemptive process that we have experienced since he left office. And yet this book has some rather harsh things to say about him. Have you changed your mind, or what were you getting at when you were saying those nice things? No, I haven't changed my mind at all. Uh, he is such a gifted uh, human being and the capacity for empathy. And I tell a story in the book about <clears throat> my encounter with a trooper uh, in Arkansas, and it was pretty colorful. I was there to speak to the Arkansas Bar Association, and uh, happily, the uh, powers that be arranged for a state trooper to pick me up and to ferry me about to hot springs and so forth and so on. And this wonderful trooper, when I get into a marked car and uh, I get in the front seat, not in the back seat, he says, that's just like Bill. Who's Bill? <laughs> the governor of the state and soon to be the nominee uh, for uh, the presidency. Uh, and uh, anyway, the book tells us, I think it's such a charming story and it's sort of the uh, humanity of, of uh, Bill Clinton. I'll just also say my view of his capacities, his talents and sort of haven't changed uh, whatsoever. But this really could have been Contempt and American Tragedy, you know, the, the Theodore Dreiser book for me, because with all this uh, ability, uh, including his ability to change course, remember we're on the eve of the midterms? Well, every now and then, the midterms proved to be a true wave, W-A-V-E, uh, election. And in 1994, there was a wave election 
<clears throat> uh, and the Republicans came to power in the House of Representatives for the first time in 40 years. And President Clinton then, instead of uh, being, what shall I say, sore feelings about it, then gave this remarkable uh, State of the Union address two months later that uh, had the memorable line, the era of big government is over. Well, not really, but you know, it was the right thing to say under the circumstances. The American tragedy part is that if he had been more honest in his dealings, I'm not talking about the Lewinsky phase, more honest in his dealings in Arkansas, if Arkansas had had checks and balances so that he knew that he would be held, along with other Arkansas politicians, would be held accountable, that there really was a rule of law, uh, all of us would have been spared whitewater uh, and then uh, the Lewinsky phase of the investigation. So the name of the book, by the way, just comes out of the fact that, and, and this is the name arose out of my writing of the book, that President Clinton stands as the only president in American history to have been held in contempt by a United States District Court judge. And he accepted that judgment. And the contempt was not just with respect to his perjurious testimony, it was obstruction of justice. So this is serious business. So it's an American tragedy along with all these gifts. The trooper story you tell talks about Clinton's thoughtfulness to the trooper, but it also has the trooper telling stories about Clinton's sexual indiscretions. Yeah. And I asked about 2016 because in the two years, I guess, since you were here last, we've had the Me Too movement, and we've also had new allegations of sexual misconduct toward the current president. Does your investigation look and feel different to America now than it did even two years ago in light of these changes? Well, I think so because the cultural change in law reflects uh, uh, our culture. Uh, it shapes the culture, but it also reflects the culture in this a kind of dynamic exchange with the law, lawmakers, judges, and so forth, being part of the culture. And so when, uh, and, and I go into this in the book, when you read about the very harsh things said about individuals uh, who were allegedly involved uh, with uh, the president or the governor before then, it just, it's, it's, it's so shocking uh, for James Carville to say trailer park trash about a particular human being. I mean, just, we recoil at that now. How could you do that? It's so demeaning, so anti-human dignity. Uh, so I think that there has been now, to say that there is additional sensitivity to treating everyone with dignity in the workplace, which of course is what the Paula Corbin Jones litigation was all about. She was someone in the workplace, uh, someone who was an employee of the Arkansas state government, and she was entitled to her day in court uh, and for everyone to play by the rules. So uh, here, here's a quick uh, uh, anecdote. that uh, I spoke at, uh, at Berkeley, this is just before the book came, not just before, but uh, this year, and I'm at Berkeley every couple of years, and so just in light of all that was going on, I asked uh, my faculty member host, uh, I, I think uh, Ann Coulter had been there fairly recently, and there were protests and tires being burned and so forth. So I asked somewhat seriously, at least semi-seriously, well, will there be protests? He said, oh, no, no, you're very popular. I said, what do you mean you're very popular? He said, they think investigating the president is great. <laughs> And that's what you did. And of course, these were law students, and they did not really, shall I say, live through it the way a number of you I see in the audience were old enough to remember some of this uh, activity from years ago. Well, um, there are many liberals who criticized you during the time of the Lewinsky investigation who have changed their mind and said both that we need investigations of the president and he behaved uh, unacceptably toward women. He did not treat them with respect and dignity. Still, in the book, you say that you regret the fact that your investigation was expanded to include Lewinsky. Why do you regret it, and are there any other aspects of the investigation that you regret? Well, when you start listing regrets, the, the list can be quite, quite long with the benefit of 2020 hindsight. 
the regret that I expressed, Jeff, in the book has to do with the fact that uh, Janet Reno, and I describe this in the book, made the decision, it was Janet Reno's decision, I think that's part of the structure of the independent counsel statute that is not understood, and I hope the book will help illuminate that. But when we found out that uh, President Clinton was involved in a course of perjury, encouraging others to lie and so forth, possibly intimidating witnesses, et cetera, we said, oh my goodness. And so we took that information to Janet Reno, who then had a wonderful man, he's deceased now, named Mark Richard. Mark was the senior civil servant in the criminal division. You probably ran into Mark extremely experienced, he been chief of the fraud section, and he comes over, I met with Mark, he said, here's what we have. He goes back, the Deputy Attorney General Eric Holder, uh, the Attorney General Janet Reno, and who knows what other advisors she had, and in very short order, she said, this has to be investigated. The President is on the verge of, you know, this sort of uh, criminal uh, enterprise. Here's my regret that she did not have a Jeff Rosen ready as sort of the God, reserves to appoint to do that. Because I was already trying to get away to Pepperdine University where I was going to become dean. That eventually happened, and I'm thankful for that. But in any event, uh, she, I think, as a practical matter, had to come to our office. I think because of all the circumstances including the Arkansas phase of the investigation where we had 14 criminal convictions, there was just so much, shall I say, animosity and rancor and so forth. The president's business partners, Hillary's clients had been convicted of felonies. His successor, the governor of Arkansas had been convicted of felonies. And there was just an enormous amount of, shall I say, acrimony in the air. So that's my biggest single regret, that I was not able to and I describe this in the book, depart in 1997, this phase happened in 1998, for Pepperdine, which was my intent, and to pass the leadership of the investigation, which had unfinished business quite apart from what was destined to come in, in Lewinsky. So it's a structural regret as opposed to, well, why did you do this or why did you do that? What about aspects of the investigation itself. It's quite clear in the book that Monica Lewinsky herself was very distraught by the investigation. She wept and cried when she was uh, wired and revealed that you know uh, she was a suspect and she called the White House and tried to give the code name Hoover, Hoover, to warn yeah. Clinton, as you related, yeah. that you were on his tail. And there was something, uh, do you feel in retrospect that the wiring of Linda Tripp and the subpoenaing of the diaries, all those things that so right. upset Monica Lewinsky might have gone too far. No, I, I don't. We used uh, appropriate tools in the prosecutor's uh, toolbox. Uh, we were accused of, of abusing those tools, uh, including the allegation was made by Monica's lawyer that we had deprived her of the opportunity to reach out to counsel. That was untrue. Uh, and it was litigated, and it was found not to be a meritorious charge. So a lot of charges were leveled uh, at us, but in each and every case, our uh, investigation was found to be ethical and professional. Uh, were we firm? Absolutely. And we said to Monica, and, and the nation would have been spared, had, had Monica not loved the president so, and she was determined not to bring him down. And I recount in the book, and I don't think this was ever reported before, the dramatic interchange that Monica had on that fateful night when she decided, I'm not going to cooperate with the investigation, uh, when she said to her mother, who, was, who had come down from New York, who was encouraging her to cooperate with the investigation, uh, to be protected from any kind of criminal prosecution. And so Monica, as I say in the book, uh, sort of yelled at her mom and said, I am not going to bring this, and then she used a pretty strong word, president down. And, and she stuck to that position month after month. You and I have discussed this over the years, and there's no question that what you did was legal under the current constitutional doctrine, but 100 years ago, it wouldn't have been possible to subpoena private diaries or papers because the protection for mm. diaries was so much mm. higher. 
has the law eroded too far in allowing the investigation of private life, or do you think that all that was perfectly appropriate and justified well? As well? I think we, again, uh, Jeff, used the tools that were lawfully there for us, but uh, I welcome additional protections of, of privacy, sort of the sanctity of the soul, your ability to um, be uh, who you are <laughs> and to uh, express uh, your views. And so I think, ironically, even in the wake of the Warren Court decisions and so forth with Miranda, Mount versus Ohio, protecting various and sundry very uh, important rights, in many respects, uh, the law has been not as sensitive to these privacy uh, uh, interests. But frankly, it would have been irresponsible not to, if it's relevant evidence, and the fundamental rule from ancient times has been that the grand jury is entitled to the evidence. And then it's for the grand jury to decide. Now I know that, and I address this in the book, all oh, grand juries are, they're just, they're the, what shall I say, a mask, and you can get a grand jury to the old defense, uh, criminal defense lawyer observation. You can get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. Well, uh, not many people go inside grand juries. <laughs> and you don't want to be in a grand jury unless you're a grand juror. But I have been in grand juries uh, in Little Rock and in Washington, D.C. And these are citizens. I mean, these are people who have taken an oath. Uh, I have found in my experience over those years, uh, I was not a career prosecutor, but I found that uh, grand jurors are very solicitous, very, uh, very protective uh, of uh, of, of witnesses. And one of the things I recount in the book is we had one prosecutor in the Vince Foster uh, Jr. A death investigation who was, and this is all in the public domain, uh, sort of browbeating witnesses. And the grand jurors did not appreciate it. He wasn't browbeating the grand jurors, but he's browbeating uh, witnesses. And they're just good human beings of common sense and dignity and so forth, and they re rebelled. And so we, as it were, we, we removed him from the grand jury because there's just no way to conduct uh, oneself. So I, the reason I want to go into the grand juries and the pedigrees is that, lest I fail to say it, and one of the things in my dedication is I dedicated the book to, including to my family, my spouse, Alice is here. Alice, do you want to stand up and wave somewhere? She's in the back. She's the one who was falling asleep. She's heard this before. No, not all, but. Uh, Welcome to Alice. But, <laughs> but so she's here. Uh, the, 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 I really salute the people of Little Rock in particular, but also the people in Washington, D.C. who served on the grand jury. They were just good, honest, honorable people, most of whom I assume I didn't ask had voted for the president. You just used an extremely resonant phrase, protections for the sanctity of the soul. And as you know, and you've described, the Fifth Amendment originally passed to protect mental privacy and cognitive liberty no longer protects it. And the Fourth Amendment no longer contains protections for private papers. If you had to resurrect legal or constitutional protections for the sanctity of the soul, what would they look like? Oh, that's a great philosophical question. You've no, given practical me a, question. You've given me a, a law no. review article. No, but, no, no. But, no, but it's also a very it's deep jurisprudential. Yeah. At a philosophical level, I think uh, our whole idea of the Constitution is to protect, and the preamble, the, to secure the blessings of liberty for ourselves and our posterity. So that's us. So we're in that long line. And the liberty also includes the liberty of the mind, what Jackson, Robert Jackson called in the Barnett case, the flag salute uh, case. Uh, the, 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 there should be no orthodoxy <laughs> in matters of uh, religion, of politics, and so forth. And no official higher petty should be able to declare what this is. So this is very deeply ingrained in our understanding, by the way, of the depth of the First Amendment. The idea of freedom of speech is not just speech, it's expression, so it's art, it's music and the like. And so I think much of the law has been increasingly sensitive to these kinds of things. But you're right, once the criminal investigation process begins, then there's this back and forth, this, this tug of war between these very valuable personal 
dimensions of humanity and then the right of society to make sure that as best we can that, uh, that we're a law-abiding society. That's a rich and fascinating suggestion that protection for, this, for the sanctity of the soul might be located in the First Amendment, and some of Justice Kennedy's jurisprudence uh, yeah. suggests that as well. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the Constitution, as we must here at the National Constitution Center, a central player in this book is the Supreme Court's decision in Morrison versus Olson. Ladies and gentlemen, Morrison versus Olson was the Supreme Court decision that by an eight to one vote upheld the Independent Counsel Act under which can served, the only dissent was Justice Scalia. You said in the book that you were opposed to Morrison and Olson when you were appointed. No, it was the statute. You were opposed to the statute? Yeah. And, and, and you thought that, did, did you think that Morrison was correct to uphold the statute? Uh, no. 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 So you agreed with Justice Scalia and yet you, you accepted the appointment. Um, do you think that the current, well, first of all, why did you accept the appointment if you thought the statute was unconstitutional? And, uh, well, that's, the, I'll just ask you that first. <laughs> He's just got a laugh line. Why, why did you accept Yeah, absolutely. You know, why did you, why? That's absolutely. the best question I think of. Why did you accept this appointment to begin with? <laughs> if you thought uh, the office was unconstitutional. Yeah, and I actually go through this introspection in the book by saying that I thought it was unconstitutional and I would have voted the other way had I been on the Supreme Court. At my court, I was on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit when the issue was first presented in connection with our friend Ted Olson, who was the subject of an independent counsel investigation. No charges were brought, and rightly so. Very good and honorable man. Um, and so the, the uh, D.C. Circuit struck it down as unconstitutional uh, in a very, I thought, learned opinion, scholarly opinion by Judge Lawrence Silberman. But it goes up to the Supreme Court and to my chagrin, the Chief Justice of the United States, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist, wrote a pretty ringing defense of it in essentially a balancing act. Well, it's not that much power that's taken away from the presidency through this mechanism of appointment and so forth. The long and short of it is, as I say in the book, uh, the Supreme Court has the last word, barring a constitutional amendment or a change of heart. And so by the time that Judge David Sintel reached out to me in 1994, uh, the issue was settled. And there was no hue and cry, a la Plessy versus Ferguson or Dred Scott, that, oh my word, the Supreme Court of the United States, how could it possibly have upheld uh, this benighted uh, statute? So the society, <laughs> the Congress had accepted it. And, you know, it's, it's now a matter of choice and policy as to whether we have this particular mechanism for investigating the president and high officials, or do we want to go back, which is where we are now, we'll probably talk about the Bob Mueller investigation. Do we want to return to what I call the Grant model? And the Grant model is that of Ulysses S. Grant, who appointed uh, and he personally did it, uh, a, a United, former United States senator from the opposing party. So he was a Lincoln Republican. So he appoints a Democrat uh, from Missouri who had served in the United States Senate to do the investigation of the Grant administration. This is all chronicled very ably in Ron Chernow's wonderful uh, biography entitled Grant uh, in chapter 37. Wait, I'm not trying to sell Ron Chernow's book. <laughs> That's fine. It's <laughs> but more tell Ron, we're, we're going to be with, with him next week in Dallas. Yeah. To sell his book. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned the Mueller investigation. Uh, do you believe that there are any constitutional difficulties with the special counsel law? And if not, what would you tell Bob Mueller based on your own experience as independent counsel? No, there's no uh, constitutional impediment. I mean, that's even saying that Morrison versus Olson was rightly or wrongly decided because Congress made the decision in 1999 and I testified. And there was some surprise that I testified against its reauthorization. I'll always remember, and I chronicled this in the book, that uh, Senator Dick Durbin, who was a more junior senator, obviously, at the time, uh, and the, uh, the chair was Fred Thompson, and the ranking minority member was Joe Lieberman from Connecticut. So these are very able people. And Senator Durbin, who was fairly junior on the committee, says, I'm very, he's a very elegant guy. He said, I'm very surprised that you of all people would be testifying <laughs> against the independent counsels. And I was still the independent counsel. 
But we'd gone through Lewinsky, et cetera, and so people had very strong feelings, as you may well remember. Uh, but I said, well, uh, Senator, uh, I actually served in the Justice Department in the early 1980s for my appointment to the D.C. Circuit, and we took the position in the Justice Department that the law was unconstitutional. And interestingly enough, to show you what a small world it is, the person who testified to that effect in the Reagan administration was one Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, it, it all comes around, doesn't it? So uh, my view was that by virtue of taking the appointment process away from the Attorney General and the President, the grant model, investing it in a three-judge panel, the court had, the, excuse me, the Congress had eroded the traditional powers and prerogatives of the executive branch. I understood why, because how can it be independent? I understand the arguments, but I think what the Mueller regulations, uh, they really are the Reno regulations, embody is the appropriate compromise between independence on the one hand and accountability on the other. The statute erred on the side of independence, the current regulations under which Bob Mueller operates, appointed by the Attorney General or the acting Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, I think strikes the correct balance with a little bit less independence, but more accountability. Uh, Rod Rosenstein is a character in your book. Speaking of things coming around, he was on your uh, independent counsel team, and Bob Mueller is accountable to him, and formally the president can fire uh, Rosenstein or the special counsel, Bob Mueller. Right. Do you, what would your advice to the president be? Should he fire Mueller? Absolutely not. Uh, I, I've seen nothing to suggest that uh, Bob has in any way transgressed uh, the, the, the bounds and their, their judges <laughs> there to, uh, if, if a defense lawyer believes that the, the special counsel has done so, that's why the courthouse uh, is open. Uh, and I'm very glad that the, the president has not uh, uh, fired uh, Rod Rosenstein. Rod was, uh, is a very, very fine person of great ability. He went to Penn undergrad, so he's uh, kind of a hometown, uh, went to Wharton undergrad, uh, then to the Harvard Law School, but forgive him for that, but he's very, very person of complete integrity, and I think it's <coughs> conducting himself with complete integrity. So uh, I hope that the president will show restraint, will continue to show restraint, uh, even after the midterms, whatever happens in, in the midterms. Uh, and uh, from everything I've seen, uh, uh, Bob Mueller has done a very creditable job. If the president did fire Rosenstein or Mueller, what would the remedy be? There's no practical, uh, excuse me, there's no legal remedy. The issue would then be, will articles of impeachment uh, be uh, offered? I think they would. Uh, I'm not encouraging that. One of the messages of the book is, impeachment is hell. <laughs> Forgive my language, but regardless, look at Andrew Johnson. Even Andrew Johnson survived, right? And then we know, we, we learn from experience. I mean, experience is a great teacher. Uh, and I think from the Clinton years, we've learned that, and I go into this in some detail in the book, it would have been better, certainly now in retrospect with 2020 hindsight, if everyone had been able to rally around the suggestions made by, there she is, she's still around, Sir Dianne Feinstein of California, Joe Lieberman of Connecticut. There were other very thoughtful voices around saying, let's agree on a resolution of censure. The president should not be able to uh, uh, perform this way, to act this way, and they're not talking about the morality of the enterprise. Leave that aside. That's a private question. Uh, the issue is his duty as a citizen sworn to uphold the law and sworn to, to give truthful testimony and so forth. Uh, we never really had, Jeff, as I recall, and of course I was at that point on the sidelines, a really full conversation at that time about, well, is censure, a resolution of censure, the correct and sort of calibrated remedy as opposed to impeachment? So here's the constitutional point. 
uh, wisely, I believe, the founding generation said, impeachment on the basis of a majority vote in the people's house. It's the House of Representatives. So that's sort of the grand jury uh, acting. Then it goes to the world's greatest deliberative body, to the United States Senate. And there is a supermajority requirement. So think of that. There really will need to be virtually a national consensus in order for impeachment to result in the actual conviction and removal of the President of the United States. And I think it probably will never come to that. Uh, I hope it never does in our country with respect to the President because judges find themselves impeached and actually there are trials and we've had a bit of a history of that. Uh, in, in, in the country and, and going all the way through a trial in the Senate and the conviction and the removal from office. And I think that Nixon uh, teaches that because presumably, it's, it's speculative, President Nixon would have been impeached and he likely would have been convicted in the Senate. Uh, I mean, it's a predictive judgment. But he resigned. And he resigned because his on-party leaders went to him and said, it's the right thing to do. And you're not going to survive. And I remember so vividly, one of his most, President Nixon's most eloquent defenders in the House Judiciary Committee, and as a young lawyer, I'm watching as the nation was, I said, I wanna be like Charles Wiggins. He's terrific. He became a very distinguished, deceased, Ninth Circuit judge. And he fought and fought and fought, and then in the fullness of time came to the view that Richard Nixon had entered into a conspiracy to obstruct justice. And that was it. When your most eloquent and aggressive defenders didn't say, I've got a guilty client here. We never came to that in President Clinton in the sense that in Watergate, obstructing justice in that context was viewed it's removable. Obstruction of justice, which again remembers why President Clinton was held in contempt for obstruction of justice, was not viewed by the American people as warranting the removal. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that the American people want stability. They may not like the president. They may not like the president a lot, but there's a, let's have an election and decide this. If the Mueller investigation found clear evidence of obstruction of justice, by President Trump, should he be impeached? Yeah, yeah, I believe so, because that's a clear, in my judgment, high crime and, uh, and, and, and misdemeanor. It becomes a judgment call. Uh, and that's, I think, is part of what the Clinton experience tells us. Uh, do we want, and one of the things I think we should chat if, if, briefly about, is the indictability of the president. My own view, and I'm in a minority, uh, of this is the president can be indicted. Uh, and I cite the Clinton versus Jones decision by the Supreme Court holding in the Paula Corbin Jones case that the president was amenable to a civil suit, right? He could not seek a postponement of the civil lawsuit, the sexual harassment lawsuit, because of the, uh, his serving as president. It's a serious argument on the other side, I think, but that's my view. So now, who, are, who am I disputing? I'm not sure I'm disputing. I know I'm not disputing any uh, authoritative resolution of it. I am disputing a very learned opinion by the Office of Legal Counsel, and I'm disputing a memorandum, an informal mem memorandum prepared by then Solicitor General Robert Bork. Does anyone remember Sparrow Agnew, right? So the issue is, can he be indicted? And uh, Solicitor General Bork prepared a memorandum drawing a line, a constitutional line between the president and the vice president, and he concluded in this memorandum, the president cannot be indicted, the vice president can. Uh, now, Hamilton, there's a lot of talk about Hamilton. I walk around Philadelphia and it's Hamilton. I said, that's good. Uh, so in, uh, in the Federalist uh, 69, uh, Hamilton seems to point toward impeachment followed by conviction uh, I'm sorry, but followed, followed by indictment. And I think that is, in fact, the natural course to take, but as a matter of constitutional law, I think the president can, in fact, be indicted. Uh, 
now Justice Kavanaugh uh, is a, also a big uh, part of the book. You call him the principal wordsmith of the articles of impeachment against uh, President Clinton. Of, the, I, of the, the grounds. Of the grounds. Of the grounds part of the report. Yeah. yeah. And I think he's changed his mind about the indictability of the president based partly on his subsequent experience working in the White House and realizing the difficulty of responding to requests. What do you think of his change of mind and why, do you, why haven't you changed yours? No, I haven't. I guess I'm stuck in the mud in terms of uh, the, the view, although, you know, again, I, I credit the other side as being very, very weighty. What uh, now Justice Kavanaugh did in this Minnesota Law Review article was, I thought, extremely thoughtful and wise. Uh, because of the nation's experience, President Clinton's experience in the Corbin Jones, Paula Corbin Jones case, our experience with impeachment and so forth, uh, is to say Congress should consider legislation that would in fact give the president a timeout. Not immunity, but a, ti a timeout, which is exactly what President Clinton was urging in terms of the civil cases. Uh, the civil case that he was uh, confronted with as, as a defendant. Now, interestingly enough, again, again, experience is such a great teacher, history is such a great teacher. When he entered the presidency, uh, John Kennedy was the subject of uh, several lawsuits arising out of automobile accidents in connection with the Democratic National Convention in Los Angeles in 1960. I mean, go figure, right? But someone sues him. And his lawyers were very clever and they invoked the, you know this law, the sailor, sailor, the seaman and sailor, something like that, Soldiers and Sailors Relief Act passed during World War II to protect our men and women in uniform because if you get sued, right, you didn't make your house payment. We're taking over your house. Giving our soldiers and sailors, so our men and women in uniform, a timeout, a temporary immunity from suit. And so President Kennedy, not a lawyer, but he knew some pretty good lawyers, invokes the temporary immunity from the sail soldiers and sailors relief act. Sorry, it's such a mouthful. And it was rejected. And then he wrote a check to settle the case, which is what I say in the book. President Clinton, why didn't you just settle the Paula Corbin Jones case and spare your family, spare us? And uh, by the way, he had to pay out much more money as a result of not settling the case earlier. But uh, most of civil litigation, thankfully, the United States settles, and it's a good thing in the most instances to do. You know Justice Kavanaugh. I know you're an, an admirer uh, of him. I have to ask what you thought of the Ford allegations and the way they were handled. Well, I'm not going to say a negative thing about Dr. Dr. Ford. Uh, her testimony was was very powerful, and the nation saw that. Um, I have the advantage of knowing uh, Justice Kavanaugh, having worked alongside him. Uh, I practiced law with him, and you know this, these kinds of character traits, I think, tend to come out. So I just have confidence in his integrity, and so I have no doubt that something terrible happened to Dr. Ford. But I just don't think it was Brett Kavanaugh. Because you know him, tell us about what kind of justice you think he'll be. Some uh, imagine that he might be more like Chief Justice Roberts, uh, uh, concerned about the legitimacy of the court, reluctant to have sweeping gestures overturning precedents. Others that, uh, based on his textualism and originalism, may be more like Justice Gorsuch. What do you think? Well, it's certainly too soon, too soon to tell, but we have the advantage here of 12 years of very distinguished service on the bench. Now, he has not had to face some of the most hot-button cultural issues. We certainly know a lot about his views uh, with respect to the administrative state. Uh, and so much, as you well know, of constitutional law has an administrative uh, uh, layer overview. But I think he's going to be what I would call the grand tradition, not everybody will agree with what I'm about to describe, the grand tradition of constitutional law, which is the view of the Brandeises and the Holmeses, uh, the Cardozos, uh, the Frankfurters, um, John Harlan II, uh, I'll praise John Harlan I as well, hmm. Byron White, hmm. which is that uh, we uh, need to allow we the people to govern ourselves uh, and keep the marketplace of ideas open. 
And so my illustration of that is the logic that would impel under a view of personal autonomy and personal dignity for there to be a constitutional right to assisted suicide, euthanasia. And yet the modern day court rejected that saying, oh no, 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 even with the all the safeguards in place, there's not a constitutional right to do this. Let's we the people have a conversation. That's the way I would have approached, who cares how I would approach it, the issue of same-sex marriage. Let's have, and the conversation was unfolding uh, so that we were moving as a society in the direction that so much of the West has, has, has moved. So let's allow that conversation to take place without saying how I think Justice Kavanaugh, had he been on the court, would have voted then. I think he will be seen as in what I'm calling the grand tradition. Let's allow we the people protect constitutional rights but the constitutional rights have to be those that are either enumerated or naturally inferred from the Constitution, such as the freedom of association. Freedom of association is not explicitly identified, enumerated in the Bill of Rights, but it's a natural inference to be drawn from the Bill of Rights, including the right of we the people peaceably to assemble to petition the government for redress of grievances, the closing words of, of the First Amendment. Uh, and But I totally embrace, and I think Justice Kavanaugh would as well, the great civil rights decisions on the freedom of association, the great NAACP versus Button and so forth, to prevent people from intruding into the autonomy and self-governance of groups like the NAACP. I'm fascinated to hear you invoke the grand tradition of bipartisan judicial restraint that refuses generally to strike laws down unless they offend uh, rights explicitly or implicitly enumerated in the text. Just so I understand where you'd place Justice Kavanaugh, whom on the current court would you say falls most clearly in that grand tradition? Uh, on the court now, we've yeah. had too much of a changeover. Yeah. But I think Chief Justice Roberts, from what I've seen, struggles hard not to strike down laws as unconstitutional. I think we saw that in Obamacare. Yeah, that's really very interesting indeed. What base, what you know Justice Kavanaugh well, what in both his record and what you know about working with him convinces you that he would be in this Roberts Brandeis Holmes tradition? I think it's, it's sort of a, a matter of opinion as opposed to, hey, who are the justices you most uh, admire? But this sense, you can tell that, that John Roberts really, and he has said this, I mean, including in an interview with you yes. from years ago, the, the John Marshall approach, let, let's try to find as much unity as you can. And mm -hmm. of course, the great chief justice, as Marshall was called, was so effective, uh, almost a genius at finding the ability and convincing his colleagues to come alongside the kind of ability we saw in Earl Warren in Brown versus Board of Education, that kind of persuasive, persuasive ability uh, to, to do that. Now, will John Roberts end up having that legacy? But I, I think my own view is that, I started to say Brett, <laughs> that Justice Kavanaugh yeah. will likely be very comfortable with that and trying as best he can to allow the democratic process to work. That's so interesting. I must ask you, do you think he will be scarred by his confirmation experience and uh, as a result, you know, be angry or will he rise above it and be the kind of justice chief justice? Oh, right? the latter. Uh, I mean, he, he understood uh, and Alice and I have seen him uh, since then, and he's the Brett Kavanaugh that we've known since he was about 25 years old. Uh, and happily, you know, his, his spouse is very solid, very grounded, two beautiful girls. And the nation, when they first came to know Brett Kavanaugh, oh, we've got a new Coach K. Well, what happened, happened. But uh, Brett has a totally integrated personality. What I think we saw, what I just called during round one, is the Justice Kavanaugh that the nation will, I think, 
see year in and year out. By the way, one of the great tributes to the Supreme Court, I thought, Jeff, was the symbolism of all eight justices going to the, to the White House for the ceremonial swearing in. And so there is Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is a star of a documentary that's been extremely well received and very popular, and there she is. She didn't look too terribly happy looking at the press of the United States, but she was there. Right, and then the early reports are, and uh, from his very first cases in October of, uh, last month, he was asking questions. I've reviewed some of those questions, not all of them. I haven't had the chance. They're thoughtful. They show exquisite preparation, and that's Brad Kavanaugh. During that ceremony, uh, Justice Kavanaugh memorably said that he wanted to be a justice for all the people. He wanted to unite and to rise above. Uh, your faith is very important to you, and his faith is very important to him. Will that faith help the integrated personality you describe rise above and be a justice for all the people? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm reminded when issues of faith come up of a couple things. One, that um, my faith is important to me, that uh, the Constitution specifically provides exclusively no religious test, and it's one of the great breakthroughs of the 18th century to think that, that those people here in Philadelphia two blocks away, could say no religious test or oath can be required for any position of office uh, in, in the United States. So I tend to recoil uh, when, and bless her heart, she's very able, but uh, Senator Feinstein was uh, quite controversial with a nominee, uh, now a judge on the Seventh Circuit, when she said to this deeply Catholic uh, nominee, you're uh, the dogma, it wasn't faith, the dogma lives deep within you or something. And it was, uh, I felt, anti-constitutional. But I think what this does is, is it, it shows, I think, uh, Brett cares deeply about the human condition. He cares deeply about the issues of liberty. And I'm also reminded that when John Kennedy, and I was a kid at the time, was running for the presidency of the United States, we had as a culture, especially in some states, not the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, but in some states to really wrestle with, can we elect a, a Catholic as the president of the United States? And to us, what? Why would you even ask the question, right? And so uh, I think that his faith is going to serve him well. And that's been part of the grounding that he's been able to go through this situation. Yes, with, we saw the anger but I think he is so well-rooted and well-grounded that it will serve him well. Just because you know and admire him, and this is very helpful to know, where, where did that anger come from? Was it just a temporary thing, or, or had you recognized it before? No, uh, no it was, it was uh, so, the, the definition of poetry, right? Powerful feelings recollected in tranquility. Hmm. These are just powerful feelings where there was no solitude and tranquility. So I think we, we heard essentially a cry from the heart. The, in, the, in, the, in the book, uh, you describe how he wrote the provisions describing the detailed charges against Clinton, and none of you expected it to leak out, and then Congress leaked it, and he, I, I think he may have later regretted some of the granularity of the initial charges. Was he just caught in a tough situation and there was no way out? Well, in fact, uh, uh, Justice Kavanaugh was one of the voices within our community who said, can we make this less graphic? Uh, so not only was he not pushing for greater descriptive, but, uh, and I listened to him, uh, and there were uh, several other voices who I listened to with great respect, and so, you know, the buck stops here, and so while we left some stuff out, nonetheless, I was guided by our prosecutors who, unlike now Justice Kavanaugh, had tried many cases, including some sex crimes prosecutors who said, you just have to describe it. There's no compromising. Here's the evidence. You didn't invent the evidence. The evidence just has to come before uh, the jury. And I thought that was correct. Now, you're right. We did not expect it to be put on the internet, which was relatively new in those days, uh, sight unseen. 
Uh, and I've dealt with the Congress. I was chief of staff to the Attorney General of the United States. I'd served as Solicitor General of the United States. I've served as acting, assist, acting Attorney General in some of the most delicate matters when the AG was out of town, et cetera. And I know the government, the Congress can protect and does every day. They're doing it right now. You might think, oh, nothing is protected. Quite wrong. Lots of material is protected. So I was stunned that the House of Representatives chose. Uh, it was, they voted. It was not a unilateral decision by one or two people, but the House voted to uh, just put it on the internet. And so I, I don't think the nation was well served by that, frankly. It just, okay, now let's let the American people decide. So I viewed that, uh, and, and I'm somewhat critical of the House in that respect, that no, the sort of a Burkean theory of representation, that we elect our representatives to use their judgment, not simply to take an opinion poll and to be a weather vane as opposed to a barometer, right? And I think the American people expect that. You'd say, I disagree with the representative or the senator on that, but I believe he or she was using his or her judgment and coming to, to a reasoned uh, view as opposed to just what the opinion polls say. So I tend to recoil when I hear elected officials say, well, the American people want this and the American people want that. That's important to know, but Edmund Burke, his speech to the electors of Bristol said, I owe you my ear, I need to hear, I need to listen, but I ultimately owe you my judgment. Yes, and it was crucial, as James Madison believed, that the people's representatives exercise a cool, deliberative passion, a reason, rather, to, to stay these impulses of passion. But is that realistic today? We saw it in the Kavanaugh hearings where many said it should have been behind closed doors, but it wasn't. Is it realistic to imagine that explosive sex, sexually graphic charges can be evaluated in private and confidentially? It appears not in the 21st century, the age of transparency. So I think we are in a different age. So now I think it becomes a question of leadership. How do we deal with this? Uh, and to do so in a Madisonian way, in a way that exemplifies uh, the great uh, process of reasoned discourse. I loved LBJ's frequent quote of Isaiah, the great prophet, chapter one, come let us reason together. Yeah. You know, not come let us yell at one, at one another, come let us reason together. And uh, you know, LBJ could reason in a pretty tough way, but it still was reasoning and persuasion and so forth. And I think the American people would love, there I go, I think the American people. I think that our values as a culture of uh, a great constitutional republic and a representative democracy uh, cry out for, you know, I, I think you're doing the right thing. One of the, one of the people, in fact, you're penetrating, isn't he a good questioner? No, no. He no, is no, a great questioner. Uh, no, good uh, audience. But it sparks these things. And one of the people who, I, I think that the Republicans thought, oh, well, he'll never vote in favor of the Articles of Impeachment it was a guy named Tom Campbell from Stanford. He was a professor of antitrust and economics, a PhD in economics and, and a lawyer, et cetera. Uh, went on to become dean of the, of the B School of Haas at Berkeley across the Bay. Uh, left what's called the Junior University, Leland Stanford Junior, and went over to Cal. Uh, anyway, very uh, elegant, brilliant guy, and I'll always remember his speech. I wasn't there, but I watched it on television. When Campbell said, in effect, I did not want to vote in favor of this, but I've been to the building. I've reviewed the evidence. I have no choice. Isn't that interesting? I reviewed the evidence. I have no choice. So it was just saying as a matter of conscience. Uh, and so sure enough, he was not reelected. I remember Campbell's speech, and I'm so fascinated to learn that LBJ loved that quotation from Isaiah. Of course, that was Brandeis's favorite quotation. Yes. That was why FDR called him old Isaiah. Come let us reason together. And if it's not possible in the polity as a large, it is possible here at the National Constitution Center. And we're going to keep reasoning together so that we can spread the light and find the truth. And in that spirit, it's time for your questions. I'm, having so, I'm learning so much from Ken that I've t taken up too much time, but here we go. Do you think that Mueller is a superior officer? And if not, how then would that impact any possible impeachment proceedings? 
No, I don't think he's, that's a great question. It's a common yes, law question. It is. I mean, does he need to be appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate? And the answer is no, because under the special counsel regulations, he is entirely a subordinate officer of uh, the uh, Justice Department who has a specific mandate, which can be expanded. You know, Paul Manafort, uh, it can be expanded. So there's original jurisdiction under the regulations, and then there's additional or supplemental jurisdiction. But he does that which Rod Rosenstein says, you're hereby authorized to do this. Uh, a bunch of Mueller questions. Can the Mueller investigation be expanded to include Trump.org finances? Oh, yeah. Uh, absolutely, for the very reasons I just described. So I'm glad I answered that. When you go to the regulations uh, that, that govern, you say, well, what are these regulations? These are the Reno regulations that came into being in 1999. They've been slightly tweaked but they are essentially the same regulations that have been in effect for now these 20 years. And under these regulations, the mandate that this officer has as a special counsel is set forth in the four corners of a document. It's only one page long, the document of May 7 uh, of last year, and it says, here's what you're doing. Now, it incorporates by reference James Comey's testimony before the House Intelligence Committee on March 17 uh, of 2017. And when you go back to that testimony and you see, aha, there's a counterintelligence investigation. But out of the counterintelligence investigation, this is the Russian interference, which clearly occurred, uh, the uh, crimes that may arise out of it. So it was a bit of an incorporation by reference. And then there's also an August supplemental grant of authority. The point is, yes, if Rod Rosenstein says this particular matter should be investigated, then he could assign that to Bob Mueller. One last Mueller question, and there are three parts. Uh, oh, one. <laughs> Those are always hard to. No, but it's, it's a great one. Uh, do you think uh, your personal thoughts that Mueller is legally allowed to subpoena Trump to testify. Yes, yes, he is. Uh, may I please quickly? You, yeah. you can take him because it's three, 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 yeah, yeah. three parts. So, and in the book, I describe the process by which we very carefully considered: do we subpoena? Do we subpoena the president? Uh, and uh, we sent six letters. Uh, I was remembering five, but it was six letters of invitation for President Clinton to come before the grand jury. And in the fullness of time, we issued a subpoena. We went to the grand jury. We didn't say, oh, here's a subpoena. We go to the grand jury, and the grand jury in Washington, D.C. said yes. So the subpoena is served. And the president didn't fight it. But we immediately then entered into a negotiation. You withdraw the subpoena, and then we'll agree to you know, the, talk about the circumstances of the testimony. Uh, part two, should Trump be allowed to subpoena? Or I guess should, 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 he, should, should he subpoena Trump to testify? Oh, that, that would, you don't subpoena the president lightly, and so it's sort of an exhaustion of remedies. Have you exhausted every other avenue? It's not a matter of constitutional law per se, but I think there is a separation of powers concern a comity among the branches, or certainly between the branches. Here is the judiciary saying, okay, the president is objecting, seeking to quash or modify the subpoena. So what are the facts, Mr. Mueller? Why do you need his testimony? One of the things that I found stunning was that the former White House counsel, Jeff, Don McGahn, testified, uh, interviewed by uh, Bob Mueller and his team for 30 hours. Think of that. That's almost a work week. So I've never, when, when that came to my attention, I thought there must be something wrong here. But one of the oddities of the way the president has conducted himself is that from all that appears, there's been cooperation with the investigation alongside tweets criticizing it and condemning it as a witch hunt. So there are two tracks, right? There's the public communication track of condemnation and yet there is the negotiated track with lawyers, apparently, I don't know, maybe there has been litigation, we don't know it, in camera or behind closed doors. Uh, but it would appear that there's really been sort of a bipolar kind of approach. Tweet, nasty, cooperate, cooperate, 
cooperate. I see people shaking their heads, but that, and maybe you're shaking your head and say, Star, you don't know what you're talking about. But I think that's the way it's, I think that's the way it's gone. And the third part of this excellent question is, do you believe the president is misrepresenting facts? And is it important for the rule of law for the president to tell the truth to the country? Oh, there's a truth brigade out and the, uh, the, 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 in terms of his uh, commenting on this or commenting on that, the size of the inauguration crowd and so forth. So I defer that fact finding to others. Uh, I'm not aware of uh, any misstatements under oath, uh, and, and that's, I'm a law guy, not a politics or journalist uh, guy. If it comes to, if it, if it comes to getting commentary from, from the audience here, if, the, if it comes to that, then yes, then it becomes an issue of, of actual federal crimes to lie under oath. Uh, the one rule at the Constitution Center is that like at the Supreme Court, we must end on time. So for illuminating all of us about the constitutional aspects of presidential investigations and the Constitution more generally, please join me in thanking Kenneth Starr. This show was engineered by Dave Stotts and produced by Tanea Talbert and Jackie McDermott. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please rate and review us and tell your friends about it. And also check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Lana Ulrich.